Christchurch, New Malden, 9th of January 2022, 9.30 service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, King David, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly. The Shepherd Boy Who Got Anointed. Not long ago, I watched a drama on TV and uh, it was a very gripping drama, it was rather disturbing. It was about the hunt for a serial rapist who had managed to evade the police for many years until they were in total despair about how they could catch him. And it was a true story, and I was particularly interested in it because it was set in Croydon, where I grew up. And Martin Clunes, more uh, used to sort of comedy roles, really, was playing the detective chief inspector, Colin Sutton, who took over the investigation and whose insistence on a totally fresh approach to the manhunt eventually resulted in the criminal's arrest and conviction. Now, that's a rather dramatic example, but perhaps you can think from other examples in your life. A problem that you've faced or known about that has appeared to be completely intractable and never-ending before a new approach has eventually, and perhaps not instantly, but eventually changed everything. And basically, that's what we're dealing with in the story of King David. We're dealing with a fresh approach by God to a long-standing problem. The whole story of the Bible is the story of God dealing with the problem of sin and its impact upon the world. Human beings are created by God in order to rule the world. They're given that awesome responsibility of reflecting God's image to the world, but it goes wrong. They disobey God. And that means that everything else about the world goes wrong as well. And the first step, really, of God's solution is to call a special people, the people of Israel, to belong to him and to be his means, somehow, of sorting the world. But this approach quickly runs into problems as the people that God has chosen, the people of Israel, become quickly as bad as everyone else. God continues to save and direct them, but his plan appears to be getting precisely nowhere. And this really reaches its climax in the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, where we see a constant cycle going on. The people of Israel sin, the result is oppression by the tribes around them. In response, God doesn't leave them to stew in their own juice. God sends them a rescuer or a judge, and they are rescued before they then sin again, and the cycle continues. In fact, in many ways, it's more of a downward spiral than a cycle in the book of Judges, because to reinforce how hopeless the situation appears to be, even the judges that God sends get worse and worse and worse. Samson, the last of them, is just about as bad as you can get. But towards the end of this deeply depressing book, the book of Judges, which just seems never-ending disaster, the end reflects the fresh approach that God was going to take to change this situation. Because you get this line repeated a couple of times so we don't miss it near the end of the book of Judges. What it says, explaining all of the chaos and disorder that we've witnessed throughout this book, it says, well, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And as I say, that line is repeated just in case we miss it. God, in other words, was going to do something new through the bringing of a king that would finally change this situation. And this fresh approach, or the beginning of it, starts in the book of Ruth, 
the very next book that follows. Just when Israel is in such a state that we're asking ourselves, well, how can God's plan possibly go forward? God's faithfulness is shown through the most unlikely source. A young woman, and that is pretty surprising in itself, called Ruth, but even more surprising, who's not even an Israelite, but whose faithfulness saves not only her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, but saves God's plan as Ruth goes on to become the great-grandmother of King David. Now, we'll get to David in a moment, but he wasn't the first king, actually, of Israel. The first king of Israel was a man whose name was Saul. The prophet Samuel anointed Saul as king after the people of Israel came to Samuel and asked for a king. Now, Samuel made it clear, or God made it clear to Samuel, that the people's request for a king represented further disobedience against God because it was based on wanting to be like the nations around them. And it was essentially a rejection of God as their king. But God nonetheless tells Samuel to go ahead and agree with it, and King Saul is the result. Now, like the judges, we're told that God's spirit came upon Saul, enables him to do some amazing things, but ultimately his story is a tragic one. As Saul disobeyed God's instructions, and he ended up being rejected as king. And when we read the accounts of what Saul did to deserve this, he does in all honesty seem a bit hard done by. Because the mistakes that Saul makes are very human, they're very understandable. In each case we can sort of get why he acted as he did, even if it missed the mark. But that's just the point. Saul, despite possessing God's spirit, was a pretty standard king. He was not dissimilar to the judges that preceded him. He did his best, but his best wasn't good enough. And that's because the king, through whom God was going to take his plan forward, needed to be fundamentally different to everything that had gone before. And this is the basis of the statement about this special king being a man after God's own heart. These are the words that Samuel uses when he tells Saul that because of his disobedience, God was removing his kingdom from him. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. In a later incident, Samuel says something similar. He declares that the Lord has taken the kingdom from Saul and given it to one of his neighbours, to one better than him. And this is the background to that passage that Jane read to us earlier. That passage where God sends Samuel to Jesse of Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons as king. Anointing someone with oil was, and it still is because it happened with our current queen, a sign that God is appointing them. And in this episode, as we heard, Jesse gets each of his sons to pass before Samuel to see if he is the one. The first of these sons, Eliab, is outwardly impressive, leading Samuel to think, well, he must be God's anointed. But God puts Samuel right, doesn't he? He says these words. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks to the heart. After the rejection of Eliab, six more sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, and they're also rejected before the youngest, David, 
who isn't even initially there, he's out tending the sheep, is summoned, and God says to Samuel, rise up and anoint him. He is the one. And David is duly anointed, and we're told that God's Spirit comes on him in power to confirm God's choice. And this is the start of the story of David, the story that we're going to be looking at during our talks in January and February. The figure most famous for killing the giant Goliath, Ruth's going to be telling us about that next week, and for writing many of the Psalms, and for being a man after God's own heart. And perhaps the first thing that this says to us this morning is about the importance that God places upon our hearts. In Hebrew thought, the heart isn't so much the organ that pumps blood around the body, so much as that hidden part of us that directs and controls our lives. We live in a world that is dominated by how things look, isn't it? In recent times, social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and all of the rest have become the most obvious manifestation of this, as people desperately look for affirmation of those outward signs of success and achievement in our lives. But if we're honest, we know this doesn't work. Because however many likes our posts might get, however many comments of beautiful inside and out, that's a common one, isn't it? It never actually brings the satisfaction that it promises. And it leads to a continual posting that goes on and on in search of that elusive security that is always just out of reach. It seems within our grasp, but it's just out of reach. But the anointing of this shepherd boy, David, the youngest in the family, who wasn't, as I said earlier, even present when Jesse was first assembling his sons before Samuel, it shows that God isn't really interested in those outward signs of success and achievement that we can attach so much importance to. God instead is most interested in the hidden stuff, that hidden stuff within us that no one else really sees, our inward thoughts and desires, our inward motivations, our hopes, our attitudes, our beliefs. It's those things that God is most interested in. And the reason is because they're actually the things that are most genuine. They're the things that reveal who we really are. Now, this story seems to imply that the state of David's heart was already pleasing to God before he was anointed, and it was sort of part of the reason for him being anointed. But in our case, and perhaps in David's as well, what God is really interested in is the extent to which we're willing to have our hearts changed by him. And how do we do that? How do we make sure that our hearts are changed by God? Well, part of the way we do it, and a very important part, is by counting all of those other outward signs of importance that we're tempted to treasure so much to, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, to count them as rubbish compared to being known by God, compared to having a relationship with him. Put all of those signs of achievement and access to one side, and come before God in the humility that acknowledges that we're really nothing without him. We're hopeless sinners like the people of Israel, doing very often the same bad things again and again. 
When we can acknowledge that and come before God in humility and admit that we're really bankrupt before him, then God both can and will do something with us. Then God will really start changing our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come upon us in power, and the most obvious manifestation of that will be our dependence on him, our humility, our being able to let go of that constant quest for outward badges of success. The reason for that depressing cycle of disobedience, of sin, in the book of Judges, which comes you know, just before uh, Israel becomes a monarchy, is because Israel's hearts, despite that constant rescue by God, hadn't been changed. But God's fresh approach to the long-standing problem of sin revealed in this story was that through his choice of David, he'd begun, only begun, but begun the process of changing his people's hearts, of changing people on the inside so that we could finally be able to obey him. Now, the transference of this from David to all of God's people was something that still lay deep in the future. But we get a bit of a demonstration of what this would look like in the story that immediately follows David's anointing. The story that I haven't really referred to yet, but Jane did read in succession to the earlier one. After David is anointed, he encounters Saul, doesn't he? And we're told that the way that David encountered Saul was because the Spirit of the Lord, having come upon David, had departed from Saul. And we're told, we're not told why, but we're told an evil spirit was sent from God that arrived and tormented Saul. Rather disturbing in some ways. But as a result, David, who was a skilled harpist, is summoned to play his harp so that Saul would feel better and so that the evil spirit would leave him. And it's not really what we might have expected, is it? Having been anointed as king in Saul's place, we might have expected David to set himself up against Saul and perhaps to have even tried to kill him, especially as God had rejected Saul. Killing your predecessor was pretty standard practice for a king in the ancient world who succeeded someone whom he wasn't from the same dynasty as. But instead, we see this newly appointed king acting very differently. Instead, we see David showing practical love to Saul, and it anticipates the later parts of the story when, as an outlaw, when he's on the run from Saul, when Saul is trying to kill David, David himself refuses when he has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he later mourns his death. He refuses, in other words, to return evil with evil. And this is a really powerful demonstration of the outcome of God's work in our hearts. After David was anointed, we were told, weren't we, that God's Spirit came upon him in power. And while we do see a standard form of power in uh, the next chapter in that famous battle with Goliath, what Ruth will talk about uh, next week, actually the first example we see of the Spirit working in power is this episode I'm talking about now. And it shows that the supreme way that possession of God's Spirit and its power is demonstrated isn't in acts of might or strength. They might get the fame, we might remember the battle against Goliath more than any other story connected with David. That might grab the headlines. 
But the supreme way that possession of God's spirit and its power is demonstrated is by acts of love. And particularly by acts of love in the face of evil. That's the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those of you here who've been married, quite a number of you would have had that reading at your wedding. It's a famous passage. It says that we can have all manner of amazing gifts and talents, both outward and indeed inward, but they all count for absolutely nothing if they're not accompanied by the greatest gift of God's Spirit, which is sacrificial love for others. Not just love as a vague emotion, but love as an action. Love as sacrificially doing things for other people, particularly when those other people are set against us. And it's really worth us thinking near the start of 2022, where God is calling each one of us to most show that love. Is there a difficult situation that we're involved in? Perhaps at work, perhaps somewhere else, where instead of returning evil with evil, which we might be really tempted to do and we might feel thoroughly justified in doing, is there a situation we're placed in where God wants us to demonstrate that our heart belongs to him by showing love in return instead? That will probably involve massive patience and forbearance on our part. It will probably involve other people seeing us as rather wet and a pushover and being a bit stupid. It certainly won't be the sort of outward badge of success or achievement that we can post on Facebook. But it will be seen and valued by the God who looks to the heart. And it will also be a sign to us that we belong to him. When we're able to show love in the face of evil and provocation and someone who's going out of their way to make our life difficult, when we show love in return, there is no greater sign that our hearts belong to God. And that can bring what uh, used to be called and still should be called really assurance, the assurance that we really belong to God. And it's an inward badge that shows that we belong to God. But, there's always a but, isn't there? There's a pretty big problem with everything that I've been saying this morning. Tim hinted at it earlier, and it's this. David, this man after God's own heart, turns out to be massively, in fact, hugely flawed. That's why, as Tim said, we've called this series King David, the Good, the Bad, and the ugly. We're very grateful to Nathan for producing these graphics, which he does. We whistle them up, we ask for them, and Nathan delivers them. In fact, when we look at the story of King David, he goes on to do things that make Saul, the king who was rejected by God for his disobedience, the things that David does make what Saul did look minor. And what's more, the fallout from David's actions, let alone how bad they are, the fallout of them upon Israel, upon the kingdom that he's meant to be sort of leading on behalf of God, the fallout is huge as well. Again, much bigger than anything that happened with Saul. And so as we read the stories of David, it's perplexing. Because we're left having to reconcile all these things that David does with those statements that we saw earlier about God seeking someone better than Saul and a man after God's own heart. So what's the answer? How do we reconcile these things? Do we just ignore the bad things that David does or play them down or say because he said he was sorry that somehow 
that shows his deeper relationship with God. Well, I don't think that is actually the answer. The answer, I think, is to pay attention to the longer story of which David is just the start. And to recognise that at least part of the time the story seems to be referring to David, when it says about God sending a man after his own heart, it's not always talking about David so much as David's descendant, the son of David, who would come much later, in other words, Jesus. Jesus was the true king after God's own heart, wasn't he? He was the only flawless example of a king who was after God's own heart. And when we read the New Testament accounts, we see that Jesus is anointed. He's anointed as Israel's king, not in a coronation, but at his baptism by John in the River Jordan. And we're told that God's Spirit came upon him to confirm this. But actually, that's not the ultimate sign of Jesus' kingship that we see in the Gospels. The ultimate sign of Jesus' kingship is when he hung on a Roman cross with a sign above him saying, in three languages, King of the Jews. Now that sign was meant to be a cruel joke. It was put up by the Romans to mock Jesus because the last thing he could have been in their eyes was King of the Jews. But actually, what it proclaimed was true. Because it was through that act of kingly love coming from the heart of God himself, that the power of evil was broken, so that our hearts could be changed forever through God's love. But the New Testament sees it as vital that Jesus was the son of David. We've just finished Christmas, and we hear about it again and again, that Jesus came from the house and line of David, that Jesus was born in the town of David, Bethlehem. Jesus sat on David's throne, and of course, Jesus was the ultimate good shepherd. God's radically different approach to the problems of the world has a great deal of mystery. And part of the mystery is that God sends a perfect king in Jesus for whom the mysterious and vital preparation was somehow his imperfect ancestor David including, as we'll see, mysteriously and paradoxically, the terrible things that David did as much as the good. As this series goes on, we'll see that mysteriously, God was using the most terrible things that David did as much as the good things, perhaps more, to prepare the way for Jesus to be the perfect king. There's a lot of mystery in this story, but by wrestling with it, I think it can really help us to understand the mind and the project of God. All of this is going to be explored more in this series. And what we hope is that it will start helping us to make greater sense of those bits of the Bible that are really difficult because of the awful things contained within them and show the way that God, in his love and commitment towards his world, is mysteriously actually prepared to infiltrate evil in order to ultimately destroy it. So, King David... The good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the next eight weeks, we'll wrestle with the different parts of David's story in the hope that every bit of this story, not just the bits that we like, not just the purple passages, the bits that we get our children to colour in, we hope that the bits that are good, the bits that are bad, and the bits that are deeply ugly can all help us to understand more about Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ as God's radically fresh answer to solving the problems of this world, to solving the problems of our hearts, to solving the problem of human sinfulness. All done so that our hearts, the really important part of us, the part within us, the part that directs the person that we really are, the way that we live, so that that can be changed forever through God's love.